Well, good morning again. Please turn with me in your copy of the scripture to 1 John chapter 2 as we continue through the letter. should pause to say that I am deeply, deeply grateful and consider it um, one of the highest honors of my life to be a pastor, an elder, not in the abstract, but um, of you all, of of you all. Uh, I, I do, every time I read Paul saying, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, I think. Y'all! That's, so, uh, I'm deeply grateful to be reconfirmed as an elder, and I'll just say that one of the most encouraging things about biblical qualifications for eldership in conjunction with congregational rule in those spaces is that um, I'm not a self-appointed man. I'm not just someone who went to school, raised my hand, and said, all right, this is what I'm going to be, but it is something that's bestowed upon me in conjunction with the Holy Spirit who makes overseers over local churches, and so I'm grateful, uh, and uh, it is a delight to uh, be an elder of this particular church and oversee your souls. I love you all, and I want you to know that. I want you to know that. So we are continuing on through 1 John, and we're going to look at four verses together today, verses 7 through 11 of chapter 2. John writes, Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and you, because the darkest is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. This is a very, very straightforward passage where the main point is that those who claim to know Christ and yet fail to love other Christians are frauds. Those who claim to know Christ and yet fail to love other Christians, which is that designation brother, brother and sister, siblings in the faith, are frauds. And so with these few verses, John concludes, he gives us kind of the third piece of evidence for knowing that we walk in the light. He's already talked that we have real fellowship with God. He's talked about confession of sin. He's talked about growing in Christ-likeness and walking the way Christ walked. And then here we're going to get this kind of uh, the, the final capstone identifier, and that is love for fellow Christians. Love for fellow Christians. He continues to speak with them affectionately. We've already heard little children, and I hope you were paying attention closely in John 13, where Jesus addressed the disciples as little children. John's is simply using a language that he heard from the beginning. He, he opens with a, a, a form of the word agape, which some of you know is a, is a word for love. Beloved, 
maybe it's maybe it hits us the right way something little to say something a little bit more personal like my dear friends or something like that but it again is this affectionate term indicating that he believes he's certainly giving the benefit of the doubt that his audience is on the same team as him so to speak and he has an affectionate tone towards them he says i am writing to you verse 7 but instead of getting yet another purpose clause i am writing to you so that we get a description of what he's in one sense already said, but is about to make very clear. He said it implicitly, now he's about to say it explicitly. What he says is, what I'm writing to you is not a new commandment. It's not new. In fact, it is an old commandment. The old commandment is the word that you have heard that you have had from the beginning that you had had from the beginning remember in verse one christ was described as from the beginning and that's what john is interested in telling us about in this letter is that which is from the beginning so john as we've said multiple times now is not trying to present nuanced new arguments for things he is simply calling his audience back to what they have heard from the beginning. Christ was in the beginning, talking about the beginning of the incarnation, and he's saying you have had this commandment since the beginning, referring in their case to the beginning when they first received commands as disciples of Jesus Christ, when they first received the gospel. What I am telling you, what I am stirring up, stirring you up by way of reminder, if Paul were writing it, that's what he would have said, this is, this is not new. This is old calling them back to what he, they already know, and yet there's a wrinkle. There's a wrinkle. We read the wrinkle in the very next verse. And at the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing you. And you're thinking, well, hold on, what is it? Which one is it then? Is it old or is it new? At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing you, which is true in Him and in you. This is a contradiction. Certainly, we should expect better from John, and I think appropriately understood. There's certainly no contradiction at all. Because whatever this is, it can be affirmed as not new and new at the same time. So it doesn't necessarily mean in the same way. If this would be a logic argument, it would be equivocation, using it in a different way. It's new in one sense, but at the same time, there's another sense in which it's old. It's old in one sense, but there's another sense in which it's new. And so what exactly is the newness then? And the only clue that we are given at this particular point is that the newness of the command is true in both Christ and other Christians, John's audience. It is true, understood as it is genuinely displayed in. It is embodied in. It finds genuine expression in. That's how the word true is being used here. And one of the ways that we know that is because commands aren't true or false. Commands don't have truth value. What's saying is, this command is true in Christ and you. It is embodied because you are walking in these things, and I can look at Christ, and shockingly, 
it would seem, at least as I read through it, I can look at you all, says John to his audience, and I can see this newness. I can see this new command. It is embodied in Christ and his audience, but there is another sense in which it's new. There's another sense in which it's new. And in the second half of the verse, we get a classic piece of John's inaugurated eschatology, this already but not yet, the end of time that has broken in to the present. What does he say? It's true in him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. The light is shining. The darkness is passing away. You remember that light has come into the world in the person of Christ. It is Christ who enlightens, who shines light on all men. And you recall from John 3 that light has come, but men hated the light. Why? Because light reveals. They love darkness and they didn't want to come to the light because when the, when the flashlight gets shown on your life, you get exposed. That's what Jesus does. Jesus, in one sense, is the great reckoning. There is no hiding before the light of the world. Remember John 1.5, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So because of Christ, the darkness, here understood as this realm of sin and anti-truth, because Christ has come, He is the light, He's the light of the world, it is already melting away. The darkness is melting away before Christ and will one day be totally eradicated as the light completes its fullness. This is that breaking in of the end into now. Christ is already shining. Yes, the darkness is already passing away, but it is not yet, Christ is not yet shining like He will. Okay? The kingdom is not yet here like it will be in its fullness. Darkness has not been dealt with finally, because at a certain point there will be no darkness. That's what He says. And that's why he can say things even in the gospel. Rejoice, I've overcome the world. It's like, well, hold on, but it's still here. John sits in this tension of the end having broken back into the present. Broken into this, this already not yet phenomena. And so, Christ as this exposing and life-giving light inaugurates this final epoch of redemptive history that from the standpoint, at least from the Old Testament... It, you might not have expected it to come. In fact, I don't think anyone would to have expected it kind of come in two acts. It's like a play that comes in two acts. Act one, the already. Act two, the not yet. And in biblical prophecy, generally, they're just kind of described like the same thing. Like they're both part of the same story. That's why John the Baptist is, is expecting someone bringing hell and fire and brimstone. And then he's, he's like, is this the Christ? Like, is this... Is this him? Even John the Baptist, of whom no one greater born of woman. I mean, he's, he's a little bit confused. It's something unexpected. The end has broken into the present, but it's not here yet. And so on the cusp of death and his subsequent resurrection that will formally start the, the last days, theologically speaking, Jesus gives his disciples a new commandment. John 13, 34. That's why I had that extensive passage read, almost the whole chapter. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, 
You also are to love one another. 35, and by this all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. Let me just pause and say that this is where we get Maundy Thursday. It's where Maundy Thursday comes from. Um, this is the, 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 the Thursday before the Passion on Friday. And so you have Monday thir- on the liturgical calendar, Monday Thursday, Good Friday. Maundy comes from the Latin word mandatum, this command. And it was on Thursday that Jesus gave the new command to his disciples. It's where that comes from. This is the new command. Now, there's two very important things to notice here. First, in John 13, Jesus gives excellent examples of this love being embodied in himself, being true in him, to use the language of our text from 1 John, in washing his disciples' feet before he tells them to love one another. So it's not like, well, what is love? It's some ethereal thing that's up in the air. We're going to come back to this. He gives a concrete embodiment of it before he gives a command to do it. He doesn't give a contentless command, an abstract command. How do we go do that? He, He has showed them through his whole life. And even on the cusp of his death, there he is, serving his disciples, washing their feet. John 13. That's the first thing you need to notice. It was embodied in him before he gave this command. The second thing is this, though. Notice that no one said this to Jesus. And maybe it was just because he's Jesus and no one wanted to get an answer wrong or something. But no one was like, Jesus, that's actually not a new command. Leviticus 19, 18. Love your neighbor as yourself. We've had that one like since, since Sinai, like way hundreds and hundreds of years, maybe more. It's interesting, isn't it? If it's, not, if it's not saying that it's new in the sense that it's never been given before, then what's the newness of it? That's a good question, isn't it? What's the newness of it if it's already been given? And the answer lies in understanding that Christ, Jesus Himself, is the fulfillment of the law. And this law of love that is given by Christ is the fulfillment of the law in the same way that you might think of a, a butterfly being the fulfillment of a caterpillar. Most of us, when we think fulfillment, we think predictive prophecy, and we're waiting for it to come true. That's one element. That's one way that a prophecy can be fulfilled. But remember, the law and the prophets prophesied, the Scripture says. What does it mean that the law prophesied? That the law was always pointing forward to something. Not predictively in terms of predicted predictive statements This is going to happen on this day or this whatever. But typologically, it was directed towards something. It had a goal. It had an end that it was pointing to. And that end is found in the person of Jesus Christ, the perfect Israelite who did what the people of Israel did never do. And that Adam never accomplished. That's why Paul can say in Galatians 5.14... For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The whole law. He also says in Romans that Christ is the end of the law. This idea that Christ is the telos. He brings it to fulfillment. And as a result of its fulfillment, it no longer has the same kind of covenantal obligation on us. And so in ushering in a new covenant, in ushering in a new priesthood, Christ brings the law to its telos, its fulfillment, resulting in a change of law, 
which always follows a change of priesthood, Hebrews 7.12. And so the newness of what John is describing is both new covenantally and redemptive historically, but also expressed genuinely in Christ and those following him in, in, in a practical way. It's new covenantally and redemptive historically, and it's embodied in a new way practically because of what Christ himself has done. And that has implications for loving people in general, but it certainly has implications for how we love brothers and sisters in Christ as we are about to see. This is well-worn territory at this point, spotting a fraud, isn't it? Haven't we spotted like three frauds so far as we've gone through 1 John? In verse 9, we get this third whoever says in the span of six verses. He says, whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Now, we might ask what occasions this particular point. And I would suggest to you that it's the same thing that has occasioned the rest of these kind of points. There is this particular group of people, the secessionists that we're not going to see next week, we're going to see the week after, particularly in John 1, 1 John 2.19, that have gone out and they seem to be saying things uh, and, and they seem to be presenting a heterodox and perhaps in some cases heretical theology and John is saying, no, 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 remember what was from the beginning, not this new stuff. Remember what was from the beginning. It's likely that that's what John is pointing to, that some of these people are behaving in particular ways that could be described as hate, something we'll return to in a little bit, while claiming to walk in the light. And in fact, claiming to even be more enlightened, to have extra special revelation, higher knowledge. Maybe they haven't sinned. I have, if you, that's, what John, that's what he's trying to address in the first chapter. We say we have not sinned. Well, maybe I haven't sinned since I've been um, since I've been converted, or maybe not at all. And he just says, "Listen, if you hate brothers and sisters in Christ, it doesn't matter what you say you believe. It doesn't matter what other good works that you do. There's not qualifiers here. You're a fraud." It's, the passage is remarkable for its lack of caveats and qualifiers. If you hate brothers and sisters in Christ, you're a fraud. On the other hand, those who love their spiritual siblings abide in the light. And in Him there is no cause for stumbling. And here we get this word, abides. Again, language from John's gospel, but if you remember also some, from verse 6 of chapter 2, you back up with me to verse 6, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. This idea of being truly in and remaining in. Being truly in and staying in as a course of life. Whoever abides in the light loves his brother. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light. Understood again as being truthful about who we are in relation to God and who he is and what he has done and then living righteously in light of those two things. That's the idea of walking in the light. It's got a transparency component, truth component, 
and a righteous living component. Now, the second part of this verse is grammatically ambiguous. And, and the ESV tried to help everyone out, but they didn't by putting him there. Him there. Really, probably, just because of what's there in the Greek, is it. It's more indefinite. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in it there is no cause for stumbling. So regardless whether it's him or it, the real question is, is John saying that the person in the light doesn't have cause to stumble like these secessionists do because they're in the light? These secessionists aren't. If you're in the light, you're not going to stumble, you're not going to fall away, you're not going to go out, etc. Or is it the person, because they're abiding in the light, doesn't give cause for other people to stumble? Doesn't say. On the one hand, we have a context that is explicitly mentioning behavior towards other people. On the other hand, there's no direct object in the sentence at all. It just says, there is not a cause. doesn't say there's not a cause for anyone else to stumble. And in verse 6, when abiding is mentioned, if you go back to verse 6, the focus is on the person's behavior and not, in the scope of that verse, what that person's behavior or lifestyle, the kind of effect it's going to have on somebody else. And complicating everything is the fact that they're both theologically true. Right? You're not going to go theologically into a pit. You're going to affirm both of them. But which one is John saying here? I think I probably take a slight minority view. Not, a very, not very much minority, but, um, uh, but I think it is slight minority. I, I think that John, not Paul, by the way, which is the person that everyone remembers talking about stumbling. If I said, tell me a stumbling passage, you wouldn't quote John, you'd quote Paul. Okay, whoever causes his brother to stumble, right? we know. But I think John, trying to respect John's context, and John is the author who's dramatically different in the way he writes and the, the concepts, the, the, the imagery and all the rest. I think he's suggesting that the one who abides in the light is not going to stumble in the way that some apparently have. Who are claiming, for example, to be in the light but hate their brothers. And in addition to the two reasons I gave, there being no direct object and the parallel with verse 6, being the abiding, primarily being about someone's context, verse 11 seems like it gives us a clue in imagery form. You tell me what you think. It says, but, so we get a contrast, but whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness, and what happens when you walk in the darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. And so in the addition to those two reasons, it seems like the imagery provided in verse 11 is kind of the mirror of verse 10. And so we can maybe say, well, can we reverse engineer this? The person in the dark can't see. They're stumbling around. They're falling, you might say. They're blinded. And when you're blind, things don't go well for you. You might affect other people, okay, but the primary person affected is you, right? Stumbling around. And so if we take that to be the mirror image of verse 10, because it's introduced with a contrast, but it seems like John is suggesting that those who are abiding in the light, unlike their blind counterparts, are not going to have reason to stumble. They're not going to have reason to stumble. It's not going to be said of them 
they went out from us, but they were not of us, like we're going to see in 2.19. And so he concludes this foundational kind of this is how we know section by clarifying that those who hate their brothers and sisters in Christ are blind and in the darkness, no matter what they claim for themselves or no matter how they justify their hate of brothers and sisters in Christ because those who claim to know Christ and yet fail to love other Christians are frauds. It's very simple. Very simple and very candid. How do we practice truth from a text like this? The text affords a fantastic opportunity to talk about the nature of Christian love. The nature of Christian love. There sure are a lot of ideas about what counts as love these days. And as I was preparing to preach this text, I was struck by how little biblical evidence you can find for the idea that biblical love in, in, even takes into account personal enjoyment, personal chemistry with, personal feelings of social compatibility, or overlapping personal interests. When you look at, when you look at biblical love, what you find is it is belief in action. I don't want to downplay the gift of incredible chemistry and kind of a mingling of souls, a David and Jonathan thing. This person just gets me. But that's just not how the Bible teases out love. It's just not. You can still love someone that maybe you don't love being around. Because love isn't based on warm feelings or social intermingling of souls, but belief in action. You don't believe me? You shouldn't. You should believe the text of Scripture. John 15, 13. This is a brief sampling. Greater love has no one than this, that his heart is knit together with his friends. No. no. Greater love has no one than this, that he lays down his life for his friends. Action. Self-sacrifice. Service. So we had 1 Corinthians 13 read, love is patient towards people. It demonstrates kindness. It demonstrates humility in interaction. It, doesn't, it does not boast. It's not arrogant. It's not rude towards people. Love acts this way. It doesn't insist on its own way. I'm not treating someone selfishly. Biblical love doesn't look like I'm being irritable towards people and making excuses because I didn't have my coffee. It's not resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing. It rejoices with truth. It bears all things. It believes all things. It gives charitable interpretations. It assumes the best until there's reason not to. It hopes all things. It endures all things. It has staying power. How much action is packed into those things? Action. The commandments in Romans 13. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not covet. Whatever other command there may be are summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Well, how do I love my neighbor? Well, are you committing adultery? Are you sleeping with their 
spouse? No. Okay, good. You're on. You're a good. Are you trying to murder them? No. Okay. Well, again, you're on a good, really good path so far. Are you stealing copper from out from under their house? No. Okay. Great. Well, you're on a really good path so far. Are you coveting their stuff? Every time you see them, you just have to have what they have. No. Okay, great. You're doing a really good job continuing loving your neighbor. But they're just kind of, eh. I don't really enjoy when they come over to the barbecue. Am I loving them? Sure, you can still love someone and not not be under the delusion that they're going to be your best social companion. What about this? Husbands, love your wives. Love your wives. It doesn't just end there. What if it just ended there? Love your wives. Have this abiding chemistry with your wife. Complete each other's sentences. Soulmates. No. What does it look like for a husband to love their wife? It looks like action. As Christ loved the church and He gave Himself up for her, that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word, so that He might present the church to Himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. That's action. For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another, Paul says in Galatians chapter 5. Action. You notice John here doesn't, because John is simply what was rehashing what is from the beginning. He doesn't care to define love. Right? It's not there. So I went to John 13. Where Jesus' version of loving His disciples there was washing, action. Action. Not just feelings of goodwill. Not a favorable disposition to. Not a sense of compassion for. Are all those things often accompanied with someone? Yes, but those don't constitute love. I say it a lot. The idea. So, this crystallizes. That's one of the points I made last Sunday. The idea that you can really love somebody else deep down in your heart and nowhere else isn't a thing. I love them. I love them. I love them. Just be careful with how you use it. I'm not the vocabulary police. I could probably, if you said that, I could probably understand exactly what you're trying to say. Maybe I appreciate them. I'm so thankful for them. I have a commitment towards them. And that's part of it. I'm not saying love is just this one tiny little thing. But love entails... Action, treatment of some kind. This is, now, this is important for a few reasons, okay? I want to talk to two different crowds. The one of you, who, one of you is the, the one who has been in action for people so, so well. You have served them so well. You have showed up for them. You've helped them. You've tried to get them help. You've done everything that you can, and then, hey, they just seem to be either taking advantage of you. They're not willing to lift a finger of their own. Not, do every, not control everything they control. And then you draw a line in the sand. You cut off that service in the same way. And what do they say? But you love me. 
No, I thought you, where's your love? Has your love dried up? Hmm? I thought you really loved me. And for those of you who have a far more tender heart than me, it crushes your soul to hear someone say that. For better or worse, and it is sometimes both, if I have loved someone well and exhausted myself trying to love and serve someone, and they look at me and say, where is your love for me? I said, I've been showing it to you. And they say, I don't feel loved. I say, I'm really, really sorry. I'm really sorry you feel that way. It must be sad to not feel loved. I'm really sorry you feel that way. Why? Look at all this. Look how I've loved you. I've not just said it. So I want to encourage you. Don't buy it. Don't let someone drag your heart through the mud or behind the car on the pavement because they say those hurtful things after you have served so well. You have been love in action to them. Do not be deceived by that. And the second is this. If you're the person who says, I don't feel like I'm being loved well, despite X, despite Y, despite Z, despite this action, this way that they've actually taken action on my behalf, they've supported me, they've encouraged me, they've done this, and I just, oh, but I'm, I just don't really feel loved, loved by them. Then you need to answer the question, How is it that someone could possibly show so much loving action over time and yet you still not feel loved? Like a lot of jokes end, most of which I won't tell, maybe it's me. When you start to think, maybe it's me. Maybe it's me. The second reason this is important is that for some Christians, there is the idea that loving someone means really liking and enjoying someone's presence, being around them, acknowledging that they energize you, that they complete you or something like that, whatever that means. And I hope you have folks that you just effortly exist with in your life. That friend that maybe just gets you, it's just so easy, it's just perfect chemistry. I really do Hope that you have those things. But that doesn't mean, that's not the defining factor of what love is. And in fact, I skipped over this when we talked about Ephesians 5. Let me just go back to it. It's worth saying. The vast majority of marriages in the first century, they're arranged. Do you think anyone ever got married to someone who they didn't care for? Yes! Absolutely. All the time. Could they still love their spouse? Absolutely they could. Because love is action. And sometimes you'll find when you put love into action, all of a sudden feelings you weren't expected follow. But you've got to love first. And so if you have this misconceived understanding of love... And you only move towards people who will energize you and that you exist easily with and that you agree politically with or conversationally and socially with in the church. Your circle of love will be so, so small. And you will miss out on the concrete benefits of serving and loving those who don't speak your love language or they're a little too this or that for you. I promise you will benefit from being around people who you otherwise, outside of Christ, might have no reason to go hang out with. 
and you will risk lapsing in, in, into the second point, into the darkness of the second point here. Is that is, Christian love cannot be squared with indifference towards other believers. We noticed the foundational sermon in the series, John's dualism, the antithesis that he has. Light and darkness, truth and lying, love and hate. You notice in John's idiom, there's no like express lane there or something. There's no middle ground. There's no middle ground in the way he categorizes it. And in that sense, he uses hate in a word that is different than we do. So we had better listen up. It encompasses even things like just simply not caring. For example, 1 John 3, 17, we're going to read this. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his, brothers in, sees his brother in need yet closes his heart against him, how does love abide in him? Oh, someone else will take care of that. Mm-mm. Person rubs me the wrong way, okay? Person rubs me the, the, the wrong way. Uh, we got a loving church. Someone will show up for them. I'm just going to... Be indifferent. You see, for John, you don't need some kind of personal hostility towards someone to not love them and therefore show hate to them. Listen to one commentator. hits the nail on the head here. He says, Our natural reaction to John's use of the strong verb hates is to say that we cannot be guilty of such an extreme. But John would hardly have written the sentence if it were not a trap into which professing Christians might easily fall. Looked at from another angle, if our fellow Christians stand to us in a relationship of brothers and sisters, it is impossible for us to be indifferent towards them. That doesn't mean that your interactions with everyone will be exactly the same. It doesn't mean that it's even possible to serve everyone in the same way, think about everyone with the same uh, enjoyment even as you conceive of them in your head. That's not what it's saying. The idea is there is a way to hate in John's idiom that is not simply, Ugh! it's not simply bowing up in the, in the, uh, 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 you know, the, the, in your mind against somebody. It's not it. John's command to love and not hate is astonishing because of its lack of qualifiers. What about someone who's wronged you, but you've forgiven them? Just don't want to have anything to do with them, though. Hmm? Now, were they a brother and sister in Christ? Yes. Have you forgiven them? Yes. Are you going to be the last person to show up after every other source is exhausted, perhaps in their time of need, in your prayer life? Yes, I'm probably going to be the last person just because I can't do it. And I would ask you to consider are there pockets of your heart where you lapse into not the cultural understanding of hate that requires some kind of positive, angsty, internal anger and animus, but John's understanding of hate that's antithetical to Christian love and walking in the light. Finally, biblical love, Christian love, depends on truth and holiness. John's understanding of love, if I've failed to make it exceedingly obvious thus far, depends on and proceeds from truth leading to righteous living. 
And that's not unique to John, by the way. Paul emphasizes the exact same thing in his prayer for the Philippians. Listen carefully. It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge in all discernment. So that you may approve what is excellent. And be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Did you hear that? May your love abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent. Biblical love uses, is, is inseparable from discernment and truth according to the Scripture. And the danger in 2023 America... And I'm not sure how much more of a danger it is now than it always has been, but probably takes some different shapes. Is to water down the biblical concept of loving to something like affirming. Maybe it's affirming what someone believes about themselves, the kind of person they believe themselves to be. Maybe it means agreeing with someone's course of action, endorsing someone's de uh, decisions, validating someone's feelings as appropriate responses to reality. To take the biblical concept of love on the foundation of truth and holiness and boil it down to those kinds of dynamic, interactive feelings and responses. In literature, there is, unfortunately, a school of thought called reader-response criticism. And essentially, there's a very crude articulation here, but the, in this reader response criticism of literature, it is the reader who is the one who, in virtue of their experience with the text, actually uh, gives it the meaning. Okay? The, their experience with it defines what that piece of literature is. An author actually only returns, on this understanding, an author only returns to their own text as a visitor. As a visitor. Authorial intent out the window. Objective meaning, out the window. And reader response criticism, the reader creates meaning. It means it because that's what they experienced in the text. And I'm suggesting that something like this, because it always creeps down from academia, has crept into our culture as we understand terms like love. We'll say maybe call it a culture responsive instead of reader responsive with the operative question being how do i know if i've loved well i'm a christian wondering anybody wondering but certainly a christian the answer is when someone interprets my actions as loving that's how it's reader response how do i know if someone's loving me well answer if i if i feel like they're loving me well There isn't any objective standard because it's not based on truth and it's not based on action. Nothing concrete. It's just up to people's experience. And if that's the case, you can tell why being infinitely affirming and infinitely understanding and infinitely supportive makes, the, the, makes those the kind of things make their way into this space because apart from any kind of objective standard, that's where people tend to feel the most loved. And what makes it deceptive is when people are truly being loved well, they also feel those things. But there's a difference between being loved well and feeling those things and trying to face, chase the feelings without the truth in action. The Scripture says no. 
Love is not based on, uh, excuse me, love that is not based on truth and driven by holiness isn't love. It's sentimentalism at best and fear of man at worst. I just want to make sure they're not mad at me. I want to make sure that that person feels loved. You see how deceptive that is? It's like, oh, that's great. I mean, who wants to be the person saying, I want to make sure everyone you know, feels unloved by me? Isn't that, doesn't that preach so well? Make sure that people feel loved. Okay, I understand that. But again, back to the first point. Jesus says that you're going to be hated by all nations for my sake. There are some people... Who think if they can just be winsome enough, if they can just package it carefully enough, if they can just say it this way or meet someone right in the right and just have the right conversational wisdom, that they will be able to put the Christian perspective in a way that is palatable to a culture that hates God. And it's not possible. It's not possible. If you're trying to evaluate whether you're loving your neighbors well and certainly loving people in the church well, I would not, your first reaction, your, your first go-to should not be, hmm, what's their opinion of it? I would say that that should be a factor because it would be a very odd thing to say, I love people well. Now, I'm not, no one's ever told me that. Everyone's told me that I love them really poorly, but I know that I've, now that would be a red flag, right? But your first thing you say, have I loved well? Have I showed up? Have I prayed? Have I served? Do I have a genuine care for this person? But don't make the mistake of thinking if you have those things, someone is necessarily going to report being loved when you have a different understanding of what love is and a, and a different conception of the truth. There is no amount of being attractive and winsome in your speech or delivery of the gospel or presentation of Christian ethics that will avoid, in all cases, people saying, thought you were a Christian, thought you loved people well. I can tell that's not true. Don't fall for it. Be courageous. Be courageous and love biblically and not culturally. I leave that to you to consider. Where there are parts in your life, maybe certain people with whom you tend to offer a distorted understanding of love just because it's easier to deal with them that way. It's just easier. You're not going to hear their boohooing, their bickering, their complaining. Love them well, then get out and just go back to your other kind of love. I ask you to consider that as I exhort all of us who claim to walk in the light to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. And by the way, folks, brothers and sisters in Christ are all across the world, but we've got a great collection of them right here. This is a great place to start, to serve. This is a great place to bear the burdens of other people in concrete ways. This is a great place to walk in the light. Let's pray. God, we are thankful for a command that you have given us the ability to obey through Christ in an incredible example. Would you guard our minds against distorted conceptions of love? Where are we indifferent and have we rationalized John's understanding of hate in our own hearts because of this or that circumstances. God, would you lead us into truth, give us the courage and wisdom to love well.